everybody. It's Theology on Mission podcast with Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Here we are again. I think it's a record. Three podcasts in a row. Wow. Without a stop. Uh, uh, I don't know what to say. Um, I'm overwhelmed by the, the new sense of organization. Yeah, it's a longer theology. it's a longer streak than the Blackhawks have won games this year. Okay, we're not going to talk about the Blackhawks, Mike Moore. You agreed on that before we before we started podcasting, uh, before this miserable season. But folks, before we lose all five listeners that we have, we're not going to talk hockey. We're not going to talk Pittsburgh Penguins, how they're not going to make the, pe- the, the playoffs. We're not going to talk about any of that. But folks, welcome to Theology on Mission podcast, where theology engages the issues of culture for Christ, his kingdom, his mission. Um, Mike Moore, uh, how are you feeling today? I mean, is this going to be an up podcast? Oh, yeah. Or is this going to be a down one? This is going to be an up podcast. Um, is this because of the coffee you drank or, or other <laughs> factors? You know what? I only drink, this is going to sound um, funny, but I only drink decaf coffee. I, I drink coffee because of the taste, not because of the caffeine. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have no way possible conceivable to understand yeah, sorry i feel that could i really just outed myself here on this uh, podcast but that's okay everybody uh, i was bragging about myself about 10 minutes in mike's office and he kicks me in the shins and he tells me well i have to talk to other people to see if that even makes sense i was talking about uh, how brilliant i was on this particular something something that happened and i yeah. said you're becoming a lot like my wife and you're becoming a lot like my mother it's a very high compliment yeah and so this is how our relationship is developing live and in person on the Theology on Mission podcast. Folks, today we have a very, very, very special guest with us today. His name is Matt Tebby. I've known Matt Tebby for 152 <laughs> years. Uh, at least that's what it feels like. Um, he's quite a bit younger and better looking and in better shape than I am, which frankly aggravates me. But uh, this is the uh, burden I must bear as a frail old white guy in America today. Welcome to the podcast, Matt Tebby. It's good to be here. Uh, that's the first intro where I've ever been called good looking. But I will, t- I will take it. I'll take it, Dave. That's my motto. Take it where you can get it. If somebody says you're good looking, accept it, receive it. Just don't get pumped up about it. Now, now, uh, you are at, you and Spencer and Ben lead Mm -hmm. a church called Table Indie. Am I correct on that? Yeah, The Table. The Table. Uh, The definite article kind of worries me. The Table in Mm. Indie. It could Mm. be, I don't know, maybe... Uh, uh, problematic. I mean, there are other tables. Of course, India, of course, David doesn't refer to <laughs> only our church, but also the Lord's table. Yeah, right? yeah. They're the not table, Lord's yeah. table. This is table. This isn't like the. It's not like the Beatles. The Beatles weren't saying they were the only Beatles. <laughs> hey, hey! Uh, blame all my New Testament exegesis. Uh, professors at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, by the way, which is where Matt Tebby went to school. Blame them for my focus on the definite article, folks. Uh, Also, uh, uh, you now have not only Gravity Leadership, but a new thing developing, Gravity Commons. Give us us a little intro as to what you're doing there. Yeah, Gravity Commons is sort of just a 
a renaming of Gravity Leadership. So, you know, we started Gravity Leadership nine years ago, and uh, the world has uh, gone through some stuff in nine years, you guys. I don't know. At least in Indianapolis, we've had lots of things <laughs> yeah. happen. And and so some of our, like, our community has shifted and changed. We still have a lot of pastors and church leaders, but we have a lot of um, church refugees kind of coming to Gravity for community. And so we had to create a new... Um, platform or environment to sort of meet people where they're at. So we still work with church leaders and pastors, but also lots of people who feel homeless or um, who got, you know, sort of displaced from their community of belonging or their church, and they're looking for people that are, uh, we'll look them in the eyes and and see them, and and uh, they can talk to things about and hash things out. So Gravity Commons then, uh, obviously the commons being sort of the English commons were this land that everyone sort of used in common. So there's sort of this idea of us coming together and sharing life. So that's the renaming of Gravity Leadership to Gravity Commons. And and you probably have a link or something where people can sign up and learn more about it. And we'll be sure to put that on the notes of this podcast. Uh, folks, um, here's here's what happened. Here's what brought this this group of people together today on Theology and Mission Podcast. Uh, I think it was over a year ago, and this is a shame on me because that's how fast time flies and how busy and crazy our year at Northern has been for a, a lot of different reasons. Uh, but uh, our friend, our mutual friend, Mac McCarthy, uh, on Facebook over a year ago, we, Matt and I were in the middle of a minor conversation uh, thread. They, I think they call it a thread on mm-hmm. Facebook uh, about power, and you and I were disagreeing on a few things. And Matt, Max suggested that we get together on a podcast, and uh, he thought our differences were rather minor. And, and so uh, with that in mind, uh, and, then he, and then I think you said, well, 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 I said, someone said, I've already been on your podcast a couple of times. You've never been on ours. <laughs> Personally, I blame yeah. this on Chaz. <laughs> That's the Chaz, our new. That feels prudent, our new tech, right? Since he's new. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. He's only been here for two podcasts, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, no, uh, uh, we're sorry it took so long, but we're grateful to have you join us for this discussion on power. Mm-hmm. And so uh, here's what I suggest we do if this works for you. Uh, you make a five minute or so or less presentation on what your main uh, thoughts are on power. By the way, this is all located uh, I'm not saying it's all located, but it is located in your book, Matt Tebby and Ben Sternke, entitled Having the Mind of Christ. And it's, a, by the way, I blurbed this book, uh, yeah. what, what we call in the industry endorsements. Uh, and I said, reading, having the mind of Christ. No, I said, read the having the mind of Christ and learn to walk with God, the alive God, the present God active in the world through Jesus Christ, very personal, engaging of the soul, and a journey worth taking. You know, I got to say, I, I read an awesome blo- uh, blurb, uh, but anyways, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but uh, on, in chapter uh, Axiom 7, chapter 7, mm-hmm. you talk about um, God. God's love always reckons with power. Ironically, that syncs with the uh, new book that I have, coming out last week, Reckoning with Power. So you can find that, folks, 
Having the mind of Christ, Matt Tebby, Ben Sternke. Go ahead. I'll turn the floor over to you, Matt. Yeah. Uh, well, the book is uh, looking at the life of Christ and trying to name the, the paradigms he operated in or the assumptions he was making that gave him access to the kind of humanity that he embodied, right? So we're looking to have this mind about us that is ours in Christ Jesus. And one of the things that actually this axiom came to be during the writing of the book uh, it was the newest axiom, and it's that God's love always reckons with power. I think there's a few things that are important here from the outset. Um, I think what, what happened to me, I forget where I was and what I was doing, but I, I remember reading the scriptures at some point, and the gospels in particular, and having this realization that uh, Jesus is never not loving. Um, you know, and if he's God... And uh, I think he is. Then he's never not loving. And so the, all the interactions where he appears to not fit my understanding of what love is and how love works, it must be a deficiency with, with my understanding of love and not something wrong with him. And that kind of set me on a journey to sort of, what, what, what do you, how do you explain being quiet here and calling somebody a whitewashed tomb here and calling somebody you know, a dog here, like, what, what is going on, right? And how do, I under, how do I make sense of this? And so that led me back to, it led us back to the scriptures, and it, it became apparent, I think, after, and I'm, you know, there's, we mentioned some other books in that chapter that helped us see this. So this isn't all coming from me or Ben, but came to, came to realize that, um, that Jesus, I think the best way to name the power that Jesus operated in is, we call it justice-dealing love. That, uh, or you can call it righteousness. And, and that power looks differently based upon uh, what situation he's in. And so we, we, we created this axiom to, to talk about how Jesus navigates or negotiates different relationships depending upon who has the power, what they're doing with it, and who does that impact? Um, and that's, so Jesus reckoned with power. He recognized what power is on operation here, what work is it doing, and then how can, and then Jesus would take his own capital, whatever that was, his own uh, power, however that's uh, assigned or accredited, and we can talk more about that, and he would leverage it in justice-dealing love on the, for the sake of the other. Um, and that was fascinating to me to watch him do that, right? Because in many ways, he was a, a person that had status. You know, he was a miracle worker, and he was a teacher with authority, and he um, was a, a male in an androcentric world. You know, all these things uh, put him sort of on top of some social hierarchies, and in, in, in terms of the teaching and the miracles, got him in big trouble with the people that used to be in power. And by power, I mean like the social capital of the crowds. Uh, they used to have it and they were losing it. But then in other ways, you know, Jesus was a colonized Jew in a, in a Roman empire. Uh, he was poor. He came from a really, um, he came in a, from a place in Israel that was looked down upon. You know, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know? So in some ways, Jesus was on top of so social hierarchies and other ways he was at the bottom of some social hierarchies. And so I think understanding that helps helped me gain access to 
what's the what's the logic of how love is working in these various situations? So for me, love the uh, the kingdom power is love, and and love looks different depending upon um, how you reckon with power. So in order to reckon with power, you recognize it, and then you he does two things. I think he redefines power, meaning uh, and there's famous passages about how Jesus redefines power. When I say power is love, that is a redefinition of what power is, right? From uh, maybe the ability to control or dominate or, co- or coerce. Uh, love influences people, but it influences people differently than control. So that that's a redefinition of what power is. And then he also redistributes power. And by this I mean he inhabits systems, hierarchical systems, that remain in place, he's not overturning that system in that moment, but within that system, he reapportions, he leverages his own power for the sake of the less powerful person. We can talk about the scriptures where he does that. So I think it's important, at least for this project that I'm talking about and having the mind of Christ, to notice how Jesus, in justice-dealing love, recognizes how power is at work and then works in love to redefine and redistribute that power unto justice, unto righteousness. Um, now, that's a bunch of, uh, that's sort of like the 20,000 foot. So we can, I mean, I think it really comes alive for me in the stories and parables and teachings of Christ. And maybe we can get into that later. And I hope that was, hope that was five minutes. Can you um, give those? Can um, you give those three again, Matt? Uh, recognize, redistribute, redefine. Is that? Yeah, he reckons with power by um, by redistributing um, and redefining. Um, and the reckoning also is sort of like what's going on here. Who's got the power in this situation? How are they using it? And what work is it doing? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. All right, that was fabulous. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because it's hard to distill in uh, three to five minutes uh, an overall theology of power, but I definitely recognize um, uh, a theology of power and uh, also uh, a summary of what you established and wrote uh, together in, in having the mind of Christ. So <clears throat> thanks for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, my th- three minutes would be something like this. Uh, I start out by saying uh, that I think what we need to do is recognize uh, there are two powers, not one. Uh, Oversimplified, there is power over, which I think is coercion. It takes various forms, including, uh, you know, uh, in discourses, power over is manifest over somebody and yet the person is totally happy and and actually uh, cooperating with that. I often use like the medical system, uh, the doctor, I'm sick, I go, there's power there. The doctor has certain, certain authority, expertise, uh, and I'm the patient and uh, so forth. This would be like the Foucault medical gaze version of power. But the point is power is everywhere, but it's power over, and there's various forms of it. 
Um, there's another power, and these are manifested in places like Martin Luther King Jr., the power of nonviolence, I'll call it the power with. But I argue, <coughs> excuse me, I argue that power with will eventually become power over, will become manipulated, like servant leadership will become manipulated to get people to do what I want them to do. If there's not another power at work between us, among us, to which I submit and I come under. That's the distinction between the two powers. And I think it starts in, in Genesis. I think Jesus, when he says, uh, you know what the Gentiles do, they lord it over you, the Gentiles in power, not so among you. He's clarifying, distinguishing between the two powers. And he's saying to the people of his kingdom, a power of another kind, not power over, will be the means by which the work of God is done in the world. To me, it's all about posture. Is it posture over or posture under, which enables posture with worldly power versus godly power? And then uh, I also then want to go into it further and say, well, worldly power, a godly power requires at least two. Uh, because he's working between and among. It, it requires cooperation. That's why the church is really the center of godly power. When we're called into a mutuality together, uh, uh, mutually submitting one to another to the power and presence of God at work, out of which he works to heal, redeem, restore. That is possible in the world, but it cannot be assumed in the world. And there will be times when worldly power must be used, not only used, but it's the only option, uh, but it must be limited. So within the Reformation, they came to understand, I mean, this is kind of Martin Luther going, left hand is, is the power of the sword, the right hand is the power of the spirit, left hand is worldly power, it's to preserve society. All that power can do is preserve what's already there. Uh, godly power, the power of his presence, transforms, reconciles, heals, renews the world, can we make space for that power? And I think this works itself out and transforms how we do leadership, how we engage justice, how we engage the world, our expectations. For me, the big struggle comes when the church takes on worldly power, power of coercion, in the name of God, because now there is a propensity to say, well, I'm doing this on behalf of God. Don't challenge me. And always abuse and violence, not always. Uh, when it goes off the rails, always abuse and violence is to follow. So in, in, in summary, uh, for me, the big challenge to us Christians today is to begin by discerning worldly power, distinguishing worldly power from godly power so that with godly power, we can make space for God to work, discern, submit, cooperate, and become part of it. Um, now, there's many critiques of that. And by the way, that's probably classic, uh, if not Anabaptist, Neo-Anabaptist thought worked out. Um, so, so where I'm a little more sheepish, Matt, with, with your analysis of power, and this is where we have disagreed before online, is I'm a little worried when we talk about redistributing power, worldly power, for the sake of the kingdom. There are purposes 
but they are limited preservatory in nature. Yeah. And so that's where you and I differ. Questions, comments, and and by the way, uh, Mike Moore, if you got questions, comments, don't be shy. Yeah. You're never shy, anyways. Appreciate that. Well, I'd I'd like Matt to I'd like Matt to respond <laughs> to yeah F- Fitch's uh, uh, query about uh, redistributing power. Yeah, I mean, this is why I try to anchor the way I talk about power in theological concepts that that are that we find in scripture like love justice and justice rather than um postures that are are harder for me to to figure out how they tether to sort of these sort of love or justice etc so so for instance um i don't know I don't know how to describe what I see Jesus doing at uh, at tables in the New Testament, eating and drinking with sinners, other than taking a cultural uh, package of how power works. Meaning, table fellowship wasn't about it wasn't about small groups. You know, it was like a, it was like a boardroom. A little bit, right? So you had in an honor and shame culture, meals were places where uh, people had most honor would invite people to their table, and people would be would seat according to who had the most honor to the least, right? This is why Jesus and his disciples fight about who's sitting where, you know. And then at the table, um, you know, there would be sort of these negotiations: favors would be asked, and gifts would be promised, and and gifts would be asked for, and there would be, you know, they would be granted, etc. And so, th- when when you were at a table, there was some kind of social capital being exchanged and accredited and accrued, and this was a something that was a worldly sort of power arrangement. So, honor and shame isn't necessarily godly uh, that God ordains; it just is, just is, it's just how it how it works. And I see Jesus not only. Um, I see Jesus overturning that hierarchy within the hierarchy. So he eats and drinks with sinners, which, which is a prophetic denouncement of the people he should be eating meals with, according to honor and shame. And when, when Jesus gains crowd, you know, the scriptures tell us all the time, the crowds are following Jesus, the crowds are following Jesus, right? That means he's gaining social capital, he's gaining honor within within that culture. And if the crowds are following Jesus, they're not following the scribes and the Pharisees anymore, right? They're listening to this guy. And so he takes all this social capital that he has, honor, and he leverages it or spends it on sinners and tax collectors, which gets people really angry because it, honor and shame is a zero-sum game. It's not like everybody can sit at the head of the table. There's only one head of the table. And Jesus was beginning to get that. And we see this probably most crystallized in um, like Simon the Pharisee's house. When, uh, when, the, when the woman, the sinful woman, we don't even know her name, but that's what Simon calls her. Um, she plays the role of the host to Jesus. And Jesus verbally praises and hails and acclaims her to Simon 
which which is completely out of uh, bounds. It, uh, it's offensive. It's shaming the host of the meal and telling the most shameful person there that she actually is the host. So this is an example of where Jesus, he's the guest of honor. He takes and leverages that honorable position and leverages that power unto the woman in a way that lifts her up inside that system, that, that honor-shame system, because there's injustice happening there. Right? So that's, all I, that's what I mean by redistribute. Now, he also is redefining what is honorable. Because he's, redef- he's saying, she is treating me, she's doing a servant's or a slave's role, and this is honorable. What she's doing to me is honorable, not having a lot of money and inviting people who will do you favors. So both things are happening simultaneously there. So I'm, I, I want to name how love works and how love deals in real-world justice and center that as godly power. And that's an example of it. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so, uh, yeah, my research on tables, and I think for both you and I, tables are a huge thing. Um, my research on tables is there is a system there, um, much more familial based, like, like the reason why eating together with Gentiles was so offensive was because it was um it was famili- family it was eating together as as family it was familial um but it is striking to me that say when when Jesus goes to the house of Levi they, he just they, the 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 gospel describes him as going as a guest when he invites Zacchaeus to go uh to, to go into his house and eat with him he by definition is a guest uh, and it's so shocking to, admittedly, the systems and the hierarchies, the religious hierarchies of the Pharisees and 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 the and the other religious uh, hierarchies around him. They were appalled that he would go and sit with the despised one. Um, and it's out of sitting. So I see sitting as a at a meal as a major uh, equalizing effect. When Jesus asks. His disciples in Luke 10 to go and and be with people and minister the gospel. He says, go and basically be a guest. Go there, eat what's set before you. Uh, go there, do not take a purse, money, or power. Give it up. Uh, he says, go there and eat what's set before you. Remain there. Don't move from place to place when things happen that you don't like. And so there's this, there is this, uh, uh, posture of giving up worldly power to be at a table and to allow that presence and that power released around the table by the presence of Jesus and the presence of God to do the work of the kingdom from which Zacchaeus uh, gets transformed. And he does not then make justice, righteousness. He does not return. 
I, I believe the, in my research from uh, Rita Finger in her book on widows and meals, the, the, uh, the accepted recompense for that injustice would have been return 100% plus 10. He returns four times, uh, basically the, the, the justice of the kingdom overthrows any inherent systemic justice. So all this to say, um, I don't see that as redistributing his power. I actually see it as him entering a space and disrupting the worldly power for a new power to work, the power of the kingdom. Yeah. When, uh, one, one, one more thing, and then I'll throw it back. Uh, that, that time in, in Luke 22, when the disciples are jockeying, who's going to get positioned to tell people what to do? We want your left hand. We want your right hand. He actually uh, points to the table and he says, uh, it shall not be so among you. And he says, uh, uh, as, the, as the father has conferred on me, so I confer on you a kingdom, a new way of being together under the power and presence of the living king. So all that to say, uh, I think it's an issue of godly power, not redistributing worldly power when it's when it's Jesus. Yeah, that's why. All right, that's why. I, me. Yeah, that's why I feel like the language of godly power, worldly power, is it's helpful in certain situations, but it doesn't actually. I don't think it gives us access to all that's happening in the situation I described, because I think honor shame um, can be unto love, or it can be unto injustice. And Jesus enters an unjust way of handling that, uh, that thing where the poor and the, and the sinful are excluded and he leverages his own honor. So this is important. He doesn't enter into that table like he's an equal person with everybody else. If he is equal with everybody else, then what he says about the woman would have no impact on the hierarchy. Because it just be he'd just be somebody talking, it would be it, he would become a shame. But he is honored, like this is why the Pharisees and scribes were so mad he ate. In that story with Zacchaeus, they were super ticked off that he ate with them. Why? Because Jesus yes. is giving his honor to a dishonorable person, and that shames the entire village. And they're pissed that his honoring of a sinful person is an indictment or a dishonoring or shaming them. Why does Jesus do that? Does he like shaming people? No. But this is why I want to root godly power in justice dealing love. I don't think power over and power with and power under is helps us get access to all that Jesus is doing. And we miss these dynamics. Another example, when Jesus comes between the woman caught in adultery <clears throat> and the guys holding the rocks, he, he uses his power, his influence, his knowledge of the scriptures. I think he's quoting Jeremiah there. And he invites people to do what they're going to do, but they end up realizing that in, if they were going to do that, they would bring shame on themselves because they would be indicting themselves. And so they leave. They leave. 
again, Jesus, does he, does he like shaming people? No, no. But when people are doing injustice, that is a shameful behavior. And, and injustice dealing love, confronting someone with their shameful behavior, especially when that shameful behavior is harming somebody else, is how Jesus redistributes and redefines power. Same thing with the prodigal son. Uh, okay, we did. Same thing with the prodigal son. We disagree. Son. We disagree on that. Yeah, we disagree on that too, my bro. Uh, not yeah. only uh, uh, shame is is a work uh, shame or guilt or conviction at at the picking up of a stone upon to throw upon the accused adulteress is a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not done by Jesus on somebody. It's done by Him revealing the truth through a tactic, a brilliant tactic, which undercuts the ideological power at work there. So anyways, you and I just have a strong difference. We've both written extensively on on all of these New Testament uh, episodes. Um, yeah, I'm, not, I'm and, not sure how that last thing we disagree on. Um, I think that Jesus invites them, what you're going to do, go, go for it, do it. But he does it in a way, writing in the dust, which is a quotation from Jeremiah, I believe, 16, where, where God, God is saying to sinful Israel, I have written your name in the dust. So either, I think Jesus is either writing their names in the dust or writing that verse in Aramaic mm-hmm. or Hebrew. Like there's some allusion to this is a sinful behavior. And when people are calling unrighteousness, righteous. They, they are holding those stones and they're telling Jesus, are you going to violate Torah? Are you going to be a sinner? And Jesus, in holding, in holding that space between them and the woman, reveals that they are actually the unrighteous ones. And we know this because John tells us the oldest drop their stones first. The wisest get it. And they realize, we tried to trap you with our righteousness and it ended up boomeranging back on us. And we were seen to be the unrighteous ones. So right, right. I think so. I'm not saying Jesus uses Jesus doesn't like weaponize shame against them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'm saying that Jesus, there's injustice happening, and injustice dealing love, he confronts those causing harm with the harm they're causing. Right, but I don't see how that's a redistributing of power. Actually, I believe Jesus is not using any specific hierarchical power he might have in that context. He is actually distracting and disrupting the ideology with the questions he asked, the one main being, uh, let you yeah. who with, is without sin cast the first stone. It's an yeah. actual brilliant, yeah. disruptive tactic to the power that's at work in yeah, the ideological sphere. Then. You just, yeah, I think this is, I think if I were to name like a big disagreement, I think I, I define power a little more broadly, if it seems, than you do. Because I think Jesus is using power there. Um, I'm not sure if you or I were thrust in that situation, David, that either of us would have the wherewithal in a trap like that to call to mind that verse from Jeremiah and or ride in the dust and be quiet. I, I'm pretty sure I would not be able to do that. 
But Jesus had an incredible way of staying differentiated from people that were angry at him. Yeah, present, calm, aware, fully able. I think in that moment, Jesus loved both the men with the rocks and the woman. And if I'm put in that situation, I think nine times out of ten, I can barely love one of the groups. And so I think that is a capital, that's a power, that's a capacity that other people don't have. They don't have it. And Jesus leverages that capacity to love two people at once. And, and the, the, I know I this, think, folks, I know this from uneducated people who tell me that that's education and intelligence are spent as capital as power in our world. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, we're already past 35 minutes here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, okay, let's, let's just leave it at this. I, I actually do think that what Jesus does is he models for us a way to enter into ideological antagonisms and be present to his power and distract and disrupt and allow the Holy Spirit to convict and work. And that to me is the essence of godly power. So let's just leave it at that. You and I, uh, I think, clarified for the uh, audience of Theology on Mission podcast where we disagree. Um, Let's just go, let's just go, or if we do disagree, I think we do, you don't, or I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I would say that I, I see love, justice dealing love. Um, if my son is, if my son is walking into a, a street and he's got headphones on and he's looking at his phone, um, and I have an op- I, I have the option of grabbing him and pulling him out of the street. I, I hear I think of that as pow- taking power over him. It's coercive and and do- and dominating his body. But it, but to not do that would be an injustice. It wouldn't be love. Similarly, a surgeon when they're standing over a body, there there is a expertise and a power that they are leveraging on behalf of the patient. That um is justice dealing love in that situation looks like using their education and their competency to take charge of the patient. So it's not that I totally disagree with your scheme, Dave. I think especially for leaders and especially like Luke 22 and other places, I think it's really important to talk about, you know, not lording it over like Gentiles do. But I think it's, I, I just don't think the explanatory scope is tethered enough to the what we see Jesus doing in his social location. And I want to root it and ground it in love, justice dealing love, versus um, postures like power over and power under. So I think that's the yeah, main just, difference. Just so, just, I don't know why you brought up uh, the episode of the son of, of, of the teenager walking in front of a bus. This, this is, this is the, the prototype uh, argument for coercive power by Augustinians. And what us Anabaptists always say, and what I'm saying in the book is, there is, the pro- there is a use for preservatory power. The sur- there is, like folks, a surgeon, a surgeon and a patient? Like a surgeon and a patient. Right. So, so pulling a son back from being hit by the bus is preservatory. It keeps him alive, but it doesn't maybe solve... I don't. I, this this is carrying the metaphor too far. 
Uh, but it does, let's say he's he's listening to some evil rock music on his thing, and and he's and he's distracted from life, and it's not <laughs> it's not going to solve any more problems than that, okay? But it is a it is an act of justice to use preservatory power to uh, legislate uh, voting rights for black persons in the 1950s and 60s Jim Crow South, but it won't heal, transform, reconcile the racism that's at work in the social systems and the social lives of people. And that's godly power. Okay, we somehow, Mike Moore, <laughs> somehow we're running out of time. You've got to offer a way to land the plane here. It's all on you, wow. Mike Moore. Wow, okay. Well, th- just an observation, and this is probably off, and I'm probably not doing either of you a service by trying to describe this. I thought you were going to say a justice. I thought about saying that. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that I do think that you're both pretty close to each other. I also hear that you're both defining the problem a little differently. So, Fitch, I, think I hear right, you Mike. talking a lot about ideology, and Matt, I hear you talking a lot about injustice. And Fitch, I know that you don't like injustice. Matt, I know you don't like ideology, <laughs> but I uh, but I do think that your starting point is a little different. So then your quote-unquote solution, if we could say yeah. that, whether that be presence or love, I think it's just, it's going to be shaped differently because you have different starting points for naming the problem. Yeah. So. I think that's astute. Uh, yeah, that's what I thought, Fitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just kidding. Just kidding. You're good. Uh, whatever it is, um, I think this conversation has helped understand, help us understand what a difference... Uh, it makes in the life of a leader and a church to, let's use the words, reckon with power, which are both used in uh, Matt Tebby and Ben Sternke's book. Uh, uh, having the Mind of Ma- Christ. Having the Mind of Christ and Fitch's book, Reckoning with Power. We urge you folks to connect with Matt Tebby's and Ben Sternke's book, Having the Mind of Christ, and uh, and also what they're doing with Gravity Commons. Matt Tebby, thanks for coming on. It's too short. Uh, we could have gone on for another three hours, but a lot of people would have been bored to death yeah. as we got deeper and deeper and deeper into the weeds. Yeah. But at least it's a start at a several bunch of questions, eh? I hope so. I, do you have a final is, word? I think this is important. I, I mean, I really do. I think, um, you know, in... One of the I talked about going from gravel leadership to gravity commons, and so many of the people that are refugees, I'm using that as a metaphor, um, who have left their churches are have done that because they've been hurt, right? Yes. They, they they've they thought, um, you know, they've been either been personally hurt or they watch their church uh, endorse stuff that they can't uh, that violates their conscience, and so they they're they're feeling what you call worldly power. They're feeling the. Um, the cost of that. And so yes. um, I, any attempt to move towards addressing the power problem Christians have is it, this conversation is worth having it, because we can't not have it. We can't ignore it. We can't justify what's happened. We have to reckon with it. Hey, there we go. We have to reckon with that and, and move towards it with, I think, uh, healing. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to end this podcast, eh? Do I have an amen from the rest of the group here? 
Mm-hmm. Amen. Jazz. I, I didn't ask for a thumbs up. I asked for an amen. <laughs> <laughs> amen. That was a little bit of a worldly power move on my heart. I repent. Okay, <laughs> folks. Uh, thanks again to, Nat, to Matt Tebby. Uh, their book is Having the Mind of Christ. Uh, it's like two or three years old by now, but it's still an oldie but a goodie. And uh, we want to encourage you to look at that. Uh, we are having, uh, we're doing eight straight, po- I think it's nine straight podcasts this, this session. So look for us. Give us a uh, review on the favorite uh, platform that you use. But uh, it's been great to have you with us. It's been great to have this conversation. It's been great for Matt Tebby to come on and, and be with us. Uh, until next time, it's Mike Moore and Dave Fitch over and out. Thank you.